0: As we began our study in the Beatitudes last Sunday, I commended to you, considering the Sermon on the Mount, to be an invitation. As Jesus preaches this sermon, the first extended teaching discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, He offers an invitation. He gives an invitation to His disciples... He gives an invitation to the crowds around them, an invitation to a way of living, a way of thinking, an invitation by which we would order our steps. The invitation, I suggested, is to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to kingdom oriented, Christ-centered, flourishing. All the way through the sermon, the kingdom is in view, but it is acknowledged that it is not yet. The kingdom is not now, it has not arrived, now is not the time for the kingdom, but Jesus instructs us so as to live in light of the kingdom. He teaches us to live in the reality of a sin-cursed world. The sermon acknowledges frequently the sin that abounds around us and that remains within us, but it does so in light of acknowledging the coming kingdom. It is not only kingdom-oriented, it is Christ-centered, Rightly understood, every single portion of this sermon drives you towards Christ. Properly understood, within its context, every portion of Jesus' sermon on the mount should drive you towards Him, specifically as a Lord, as a King, as a Redeemer. You cannot... Properly appropriate Jesus' teaching to your life unless you are willing to cling to him as your only hope. Therefore, the sermon is Christ centered. And finally, it is an invitation to flourishing. Jesus does not intend to create a burden by which to crush you, he does not intend to weigh you down with his teaching. As we've already heard this morning, it is in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is in Matthew's gospel that Jesus speaks those words, which is so telling, because as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you are supposed to understand this is not intended to be a rod for my back. It is intended to be, every single step of the way, a means by which I flourish in this life. Jesus cares for your flourishing. He cares for your joy. He cares for your happiness. And so, all the way through, the sermon is an invitation to a way of living. Kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, flourishing. The Beatitudes, perhaps the most well-known portion of the entire sermon, function in many ways like a table of contents by which we can get into the sermon, which is not to say that the Beatitudes have a corresponding text later in the sermon it's not what I mean when I say a table of contents, but rather in a, a broader thematic sense, Jesus is introducing us to key ideas that he will then develop and return to throughout the rest of the discourse. If you come to terms with the Beatitudes, you are ready to read rightly the rest of the sermon. And so if the sermon is an invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, flourishing, so also are the Beatitudes, both taken holistically and individually. As you read each individual Beatitude, it in itself is kingdom-oriented, it is Christ-centered, and it is an invitation to flourish. This morning, the beatitude in view for us is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As with last week, I want to consider exactly how this is an invitation, how it should operate in our lives, and I want to spend most of our time thinking through exactly what it means to mourn. To spend most of the morning thinking about what it is to grieve, to spend some time thinking about the comfort that is coming. But before we get there, it's appropriate to think afresh upon that initial word, blessed. By way of review, what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? You'll remember, last week I explained there is an Old Testament precedent in view, which is wonderful and helpful Though in this case it does create an interpretive issue because in the Old Testament Scriptures there are two words, different words, which come to us in our English Bible with the one English word, blessed. And the question is, which of the two Old Testament words did Jesus have in mind when he pronounces blessed? Again, by way of review, one of those words has a kind of action-reaction sense to it. One of those words has a, a causal chain in view. Deuteronomy chapter 26 is perhaps the most helpful chapter to visit in order to see this kind of blessing in action. It's there that God says, if you obey my words... The reaction, the effect, will be your barns will be full of food. Your fields will be ready for harvest. You'll know physical, material abundance, cause, action, reaction. That's one of the words that gets translated as blessed and speaks very much of God intervening in our lives in a very special and deliberate manner. The other word that is translated blessed in the Old Testament Scriptures is that in which we find, for example, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Notice in Psalm 1, there is not an action-reaction, there is not a causal chain given to us. It is not there that the psalmist is saying, if you read your Bible, your storehouses will be full. That kind of blessing, different word from Deuteronomy 28 and other places, does not speak primarily of God's intervening in our daily lives in a special, extraordinary way. It speaks of a flourishing. It speaks of a a manner of living. Meditate on God's Word day and night and life will go well for you. Life will go well for you because you're perspective will be shaped by your time in the word you will start to make wise decisions and not foolish decisions and the wise decisions will bring happy consequences the psalmist is not promising that god's going to intervene in an extraordinary way so that now you find your storehouses are full but rather over time as you are disciplined to give yourself to god's word you will flourish That's all review, and I argued last week as we read the Beatitudes, the word blessed in our Bibles has in view that second kind of Old Testament blessing. Not a cause, action, reaction kind of relationship, but rather a way of flourishing. We don't see in the Beatitudes an attendant list of curses, which you often find in the Old Testament when that first blessing is in view. Blessed will be the man that does this, and his storehouses will be full. And just a few verses later, cursed is the man that disobeys my word. His storehouses will be empty. We don't see in the immediate context those curses being promised by Jesus. Equally, if you think holistically about the whole sermon... Throughout the whole sermon, Jesus is projecting a way of living. He's telling us how to live our lives and he gets into all of the details. So it seems like he is compelling us to a way of ordering our steps that will result in flourishing. And thus it would be entirely appropriate in the Beatitudes to translate these verses Flourishing are the poor. Happy are the meek. Rejoicing are those who are merciful. Now, as I explained all of that last week, I pointed out a tension that quickly arises. Last week, chapter 5, verse 3: rejoicing, happy, joy-filled are the impoverished in spirit. It makes no sense from a worldly perspective. How can those who are spiritually bankrupt be those that are joy filled? As much as there is a tension there in verse 3, even more so in verse 4. Consider now our text for today. Blessed, happy, joy filled, flourishing are the mourners, those grieving. Happy are the unhappy. Even more so, we see this tension in the text. And so we are now bound to reconcile that tension, to consider and turn around in our minds how on earth could Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn. At least... To some degree, the tension is alleviated by noting that when Jesus projects a way of flourishing in this life, by no means does he anticipate that Christians would be those with smiles on their face every single day of their lives. Jesus is painfully honest about the trials that come to those that follow him. And by no means is he suggesting that to follow Jesus is to have a smile on your face every day. Rather, he's saying to follow this teaching, to adhere to me and my word is to place yourself in a happy position, a joyful state, a sphere of flourishing, not that you will smile in each and every day, but that life in totality will now go better for you. That perhaps alleviates the tension for us, at least to some degree, but there is more to say, more to consider, and this is where I want to now start to think through what exactly does it mean to mourn? How should we understand this mourning that Jesus is directing us towards? the first thing to note is the word that he chooses here speaks of an intense mourning. The word that he chooses here speaks of an intense grief. Many years ago, when we were expecting our first child, we discovered that friends of ours were expecting at the same time. And so it was fun and exciting to walk through our first pregnancy with this couple who were friends of ours, and we knew that we would be welcoming our babies into the world around about the same time. Isla came three weeks early. She caught us by complete surprise. We didn't have our hospital bag packed, we weren't ready, and then we discovered we were parents and learning the joys of no sleep, (laughs) when we thought we had three weeks still before she came. And then baby Benjamin, the baby of the other couple, came just a week later, and there were problems. There were complications such that he was only in the world for a few days, and then he went to be with Christ. And I remember the funeral in the program. The mother wrote a note trying to explain her grief. And I remember so clearly in her note, she said the the grief is so intense it is almost physical. She said it almost feels like a physical pain. There is a dark cloud that has been cast over everything. And that is the kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking of here. Now, he's not speaking of a mourning because of a relational or a physical loss. That is where you and I experience it most readily in this life, but that's not what Jesus has in mind when he says, Blessed are those who mourn. The Beatitudes speak of spiritual realities, and especially in light of the previous text, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, it seems that Jesus here is speaking of a spiritual mourning, not of a relational or a physical loss, but a spiritual mourning. And specifically, the morning of which Jesus speaks is a morning over sin. A grieving because of the reality of sin. So you notice first and foremost the progression of thought. Don't think of the Beatitudes as a haphazard list wherein each Beatitude has no relation to the Beatitudes surrounding it. There's a progression of thought here from verse Three, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We spoke last week about the need to be spiritually impoverished, but not only that you are, that you would acknowledge you are. We're all spiritually impoverished, but do you confess that reality? And now, by way of a progression in the argument, it is not only that you acknowledge that reality, but that you grieve it. You grieve the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are mourning the presence of sin. And that mourning is multifaceted. It is undoubtedly a mourning that begins with the presence of sin in your life. You grieve the fact that you are a sinner. You grieve and you mourn that sin is a reality in your life. You are burdened and saddened and grieved that each and every day you sin. You act and think and speak in such a way so as to rebel against your good, loving, heavenly Father's decree. And that reality, the reality of sin in your life, grieves you. The mourning goes on from there to notice the persistence of sin. It is not only the presence of sin that you are a sinner, but that you can't stop being a sinner. You are always a sinner. As David prayed in the Psalms, my sin is ever before me. You grieve with the acknowledgement that your sin precedes you, your reputation is that of a sinner. From the heavenly perspective, apart from any work of Christ in your life, your reputation is only that you are a rebel against God. Persistently so, you are a sinner and therefore you mourn. Not only that, but you mourn the consequences of sin in your life the presence of sin and its persistence, but so also the ramifications. You are ready to acknowledge that oftentimes the misery that you feel in this life has been brought about by your own sin. Often, the hardship and the struggles that you feel in this life is brought about by your rebellion against God's commands. There are always consequences to sin, and you are honestly looking at and assessing your life and knowing that you have brought about consequences, not only in your life, but also in the lives of others, and you grieve the fact, you grieve the presence and the persistence and the consequences of your own sin. Now, it doesn't stop there. We said this morning that Isaiah 61 is the primary theological backdrop for the Beatitudes. Read through it afresh this afternoon and see how many correspondences there are between Isaiah's words and Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You don't need to turn there now. Let me just read to you afresh some of the verses from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion and to give them the oil of gladness. The point is Isaiah's mourning was corporate. As Isaiah spoke of a a mourning person, he only pictured them amongst mourning people, grieving people, a, a burdened community. And the message of salvation that he speaks is not individualistic primarily but its emphasis is on the corporate the communal aspect of the deliverance there are many prisoners in this prison cell says Isaiah and in total they will be set free And the point as we read Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn, is that we would not limit our grieving to our sins alone. There is a proper sense in which we would grieve for other people's sins. It would begin with grieving for the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It would begin in the local church. A thoroughly biblical concept is to grieve and lament the presence of sin in other people's lives. The Apostle Paul spoke of this when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says to them, I fear I will have to come and mourn many people's sin. My fear is that I'm going to have to come to you and afresh to mourn their sin. You see, this may sound new and novel to you, but that is only an indication of the individualism with which we tend to live out our Christian lives. I was speaking to the deacons just last week about this very issue, acknowledging with them how individualistic our Christian faith has become. Radically different from the faith of our predecessors for thousands of years who understood that their striving in Christ was to be a team endeavor. Arm in arm, we live in the age of individualism so that we think of our Christianity in isolation from other people. We tend to think about our own personal responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, failing to acknowledge that the theology of the New Testament is one that commends us together to strive towards holiness such that that there is a real burden in the New Testament to be concerned for one another's sin. Not with a spirit of judgmentalism, Not with a judging spirit, we are to look upon the lives of one another and to genuinely grieve the presence of sin in each other's lives. We grieve the sin that is in our own life and we grieve the sin that is in the lives of those around us in the church. When we see a brother or sister in Christ bearing a grudge towards somebody else in the church, it grieves us. When we see a brother or a sister in Christ behaving in such a way so as to bring a note of disunity into the church, it weighs heavy on our heart. When we see a brother or a sister in Christ being complacent in their Christian walk and failing to be zealous toward the work of the ministry, it weighs heavy on our hearts. We use the opportunity undoubtedly to assess the standing of our own heart, but so also we grieve the sin that is is present in the life of those around us. This is proper mourning to which Jesus commends us. And it doesn't stop there. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn their own sin, the presence and the persistence of it and the consequences of it. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin that exists outside of the church in society. Again, Isaiah spoke to the many captives. He proclaimed liberty for the many who were mourning. They were mourning not only at the presence of sin in their own lives, but as they looked around them and they saw how society dishonors God. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks of this very idea when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, and he says, through tears. I speak about the ones who defame the cross of Christ through tears. He is lamenting the sin of those who are not in Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, My eyes are full of tears. Why? Because your law is not honored. He is speaking about the sin that he sees around him. And so, It is our responsibility to flight all tendency towards complacency with the sin that prevails in society. Do not let your heart become complacent as it relates to the sin that you see around you. Cultivate a fervent spirit of mourning as you see millions of unborn children killed. Do not become complacent. But allow yourself to grieve at the reality of the fact. As you think and hear about millions of young women being trafficked across the globe as objects. Don't become complacent thinking it's just the time in which we live. Grieve the fact. As you see so many different groups putting pressure on people. So as to confess a lie that they know to be a lie as it relates to the the reality of what it is to be a man or a woman. Don't become complacent but grieve the reality of the sins that are in our time. This is what it means to mourn. And these are the ones who Jesus said will be Happy, how will they be happy? And the answer is the answer is because those people are the ones who cry out to Christ for salvation, it is those mourners, those who take sin seriously not only acknowledging its presence, but grieving its reality, that understand they have absolutely nothing to offer so as to amend, affix, address the problem. The only solution is found in Christ. He is issuing an invitation that is Christ-centered the reason that he can say, blessed are those who mourn, flourishing are those who mourn, is because those who mourn cling to Christ. They cling to Christ as the only one who can deal with the problem of sin. And so the first question with which we're confronted as we think through what it means to mourn, is whether you have clung to Christ as a response to the grief of sin. There are hundreds of reasons why you might cling to Christ. You might cling to Christ because you understand that in doing so, he'll make your life go well. You might cling to Christ because in him you find some sense of security. You might cling to Christ because you enjoy being at church and being accepted by the people here. In chapter 5 of verse 4 of Matthew's gospel, Christ himself teaches us, cling to me because you have been grieved over sin. And as you come to me, you find a solution you find a redeemer a savior the only savior who has dealt finally and ultimately with the problem of sin the only savior who lived perfectly never sinning and then died on a cross so as to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin rose triumphantly from the grave so as to demonstrate his victory over sin such that as you cling to him you understand now your sins are forgiven They are washed away so that you stand before God, utterly forgiven by Him. And more than that, as He clothes you in His righteousness, now wonderfully and gloriously, He begins to work in your life that you would no longer sin. He begins to work in your life so that you would walk away from the practice of sinning. Not that you will ever be there perfectly this side of heaven, but now for the first time ever, disassociating yourself with sin is a possibility, is a reality. That is what it looks like to cling to Christ because you have grieved your sin. Blessed are those who mourn. It should be noted there are other hindrances to taking in this teaching and living our lives by it. You look at the saints of old and you see that grieving over sin was normal for them. Simeon in Luke's Gospel, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he sees Christ as a child. And upon seeing Christ, he can say, now I can depart. Why? Because I have seen the consolation of Israel. He was a man that felt the weight of sin. Undoubtedly, his own sin and the sin of those around him in seeing Christ. He says, now I can depart because I've seen the consolation, the comfort of Israel. He didn't need to be instructed to mourn. He was in a state of mourning and Christ presented the solution. Equally, we read of of Thomas Watson who spoke of the fact that our sin needs to come with tears. Our sin needs to come with tears. It was as ordinary and as commonplace for him to say that as it would be for us today to say that the Christian needs to always be smiling. We've lost the sense of grieving in the church and embraced an altogether different form of Christianity. Some years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And in the article, he laments the worship music of the church today noting how rarely it mirrors the laments, the painful, honest laments of the Psalter, and how often the songs that we sing today portray a Christianity that is just happy-go-lucky, a Christianity that is altogether frivolous. He laments the fact, and so should we, and it doesn't extend only to our worship music, but all too often the Christian life today is lived with a facade in place. Not truly coming to terms with our sins such that we feel burdened by its reality, but skipping along because we found this man, Jesus, and he's a friend of ours, he's our buddy, and now I can just be frivolous all my days. That is not the Christian life, and so perhaps more so than ever, we need to learn the discipline of mourning. We have to learn what it means to grieve our sin. I was reading just this week an order of service from the common book of prayer given during a communion service. Again, we so often think of it as a time of celebration, and yet the words given in this order of service that the congregation would recite together, corporately, We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. They would all say together, out loud, with audible voices, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. And one thing that we strive to do here on a Sunday morning, in our liturgy, in the order of service, is to acknowledge afresh each and every Sunday the reality that we are sinners. Fueled by the prayers that in our acknowledgement there would be a grieving of our spirits. Not simply that we would confess the reality of our sin, but that we would grieve it. I was in a conversation just recently with a man who had come to visit us. I was following up with him because I hadn't seen him for some weeks, and he explained that he won't be returning. And I asked why, and he explained his beliefs, and they don't align with our beliefs, our understanding of what the Bible is and who Christ is. And I said, you are right, you would be better served elsewhere if that's what you believe. And in passing, he said, it strikes me at your church there is an emphasis on our sin. And I didn't take it as a criticism. I took it as a great encouragement that he came in just a handful of times he was with us and he saw an emphasis on our sin. But again, I want to stress Simply showing up and confessing together the presence of our sin, the persistence and the consequences of our sin, the sin of our brothers and sisters and the sin that exists outside of the church is not what Jesus is exhorting us towards here, but rather a grieving of those sins. And so the question persists, how then do we cultivate a grief over our sins? Not merely an acknowledgement of them, but a grieving and a mourning. And it's important to say this has to be a work of God's grace in your heart. It has to be a work of God's grace in your heart. You might pray that God would cause you to grieve your sin. But with that, I want to note very practically now, It's important to note that the means by which God's grace finds us is often channeled through the same avenues. How do we cultivate genuine grief in our hearts? Not the kind of grief that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, worldly grief that brings death, not that kind of grief, but the kind of grief That genuinely brings forth repentance. How do we cultivate that? And I would encourage you to be in God's word so as specifically to see his glory. The most prominent example from Scripture itself is that of Isaiah the prophet, again. In chapter six of that wonderful book, the prophet stands before the throne of the law. In John's Gospel, we learn that whom he saw that day was Christ. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, says the prophet. He was beholding Christ. And he describes how his glory filled the temple and the seraphim were flying around, uh, around him, singing holy, holy, holy. He sees the glory of Christ and the very first words that come from his lips, woe is me. I am undone, I am a sinner of unclean lips, and I am surrounded by sinners of unclean lips. The way in which you cultivate a genuine spirit of mourning and grieving over sin is to take in steadfastly the glory of Christ as He is presented to us in Scripture. And as you meditate upon His excellencies, begin to mourn. Begin to mourn. If you've heard the Puritans' advice on prayer, how, how do I pray? Genuinely with my spirit, how do I pray? They say you pray until you pray. You start moving your lips and you speak to God and you do it until your spirit joins in and you pray until you pray. And trust me, watch how your spirit will follow By God's grace, you pray and you just start. You don't wait for that spirit of desire to come upon you. You just start praying and watch how the Spirit follows. You pray until you pray. In the same vein, take in the glory of Christ from Scripture and mourn. Respond to God having taken in the glory of His Son and say, God, I hate my sin. God, I am so heavy-hearted by the reality of my sin. Mourn until you mourn. Grieve your sin and the sin of those around you and the sins in society until your spirit is overcome with mourning. And then you shall be blessed. And that is only half of the thought. Every beatitude has a present and a future teaching. Blessed, flourishing, joyful, happy are those who mourn. It is speaking about your present condition. There is a promise right now for those who grieve their sin. You will flourish to live in that way. And second half of the verse, you will be comforted. There is a present blessing flourishing available for the mourners and there is a future promise. You are doubly blessed both now and in the future because there is a comfort that is on the way. That comfort is the comfort of which Isaiah speaks in chapter 61 as he speaks about the forthcoming kingdom. It is a comfort wherein those who have lived with a spirit of mourning throughout their earthly lives will be covered in garments of praise. It is a spirit of comfort that meets the spirit of mourning. You will be anointed with the oil of gladness in that day, and there will be a dealing with your sin. I find that to be maybe one of the most encouraging thoughts as I meditate upon the blessed hope that we have in Christ. Set your minds towards his second coming. He will appear and every knee will bow. What will happen in that day? One of the most encouraging thoughts is to know that he will deal with my sin. Such that the very next morning as I arise for the first time, having acknowledged the return of Christ, the very next morning I will arise and feel strangely different because no longer will there be any pride in my heart. No longer will there be the pride that so courses through my veins, dictating the way I think and speak. It will be dealt with. It will be gone. And I will find myself to be wonderfully new in Christ. The consummation of your salvation will come when he appears. So be comforted by that future promise, knowing that in that day there will be great reward for those who mourn there will be a comfort that is realized not only because he will deal with your sin, but he will deal with the sins of those around you. To come together and to sing his praises on that day will be wonderfully new because there will be no presence of sin amongst the congregation. There will be no sin plaguing our thoughts as we try to direct our hearts towards Christ. It will be pure and undefiled corporate worship as we've never experienced it before. And there will be a comfort on that day as Christ deals with the sins that exist in society. No longer will the sinful actions of men be allowed to flourish. Every wrong will be judged and there will be a peace that prevails and comfort will abound when Christ returns. And so the invitation persists. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He speaks to the crowds. He's asking them to consider a way of life, kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, a way of flourishing, What does it look like? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Pray with me to close. Father, we praise you for these words from your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We praise you that there is a way to flourish in this sin-cursed life. There is a means by which we can know happiness. And in a paradoxical manner, it is by grieving. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us spirits that mourn. Give us spirits that grieve the reality of sin. Forbid us, Father, to grow complacent with the sin that is in our lives, the sin that is in the lives of those around us in the church, and the sin that exists in society, but rather give us a fervent spirit of mourning that we may know and experience as a daily reality, the flourishing to which Jesus commends us and instill in us a desire, a longing for his return, that great and glorious day when we shall be comforted. We look forward to his return and we give you thanks for these truths. In his name, amen.